0: Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media.
1: I'm Glenn McDorman, And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll discuss Sandman audio book, audio thing, (laughs) uh, Act One. Uh, This is adapted and directed by Dirk Maggs and released in 2020 uh, via Audible. Yeah, it's really not clear to me at all what we should actually be calling this thing.
0: Audio drama, audio play, audio book. I I don't really know, but people know what we're talking about. It's this thing Dirk Max did for Audible. And this is the second time that we have talked about this very cool production. That first time was as part of our wrap up for Dream Country, where uh, we did those four episodes just a, a few months ago. And since the second batch of this production is already out, it is clear that from now on, that is how we will at least be able to operate if we want to do that. And probably that is what we will want to do. But because we had already completed both Preludes and Nocturnes and The Doll's House before this came out or was ever even conceived of. I think we're going to devote this episode to talking about those adaptations. And we're going to organize this by story arc. So we'll treat The Doll's House and Preludes and Nocturnes as complete stories. And then we're also going to treat Tales in the Sand, and it turns out, Men of Good Fortune as standalone stories. But we're also going to start by talking about Sleep of the Just as something of a standalone story as a kind of prologue to the whole thing. And so that's where we'll start. We'll just get right into it. And Brent, I guess really the first topic here is, do you have any strong
1: opinions about the portrayal of characters in Sleep of the Just? I really enjoyed a lot of the casting decisions that were made. There were other times in which throughout the whole thing, Sleep in the Just included, there might be someone who doesn't quite match the voice in my head, but even then it's not that I consider the voice I'm hearing to be wrong or a bad casting decision. It just somewhat changes the way that I hear the character. But, uh, Uh, I do want to say off the top, though, that uh, James McAvoy's Morpheus uh, in Sleep in the Just and throughout, um, I think, really nicely nails how I would expect that character to sound. Um, James McAvoy has a nice kind of deep, resonating voice. Um, I think he can convey a lot um, as an actor with the amount of vocal range he has, which I think Dream is a hard character because I don't ever imagine... I mean, there clearly are times when he is, you know, upset and maybe yelling a little bit more loud. There's also, you know, awkward moments here or there where he laughs. But um, I don't consider Morpheus in my headcanon to ever particularly have a vocal range. <laughs> but I think James McAvoy's range definitely encompasses and probably exceeds what I consider Morpheus's range to be. So I really enjoyed his casting. And I, I really enjoyed right off the top in Sleep of the Just – Even just as an ensemble, having all of these different voices, because we have so many characters who are introduced right away in that first issue. And what struck me as we went is that in later issues, the cast list seems to shrink. But I really enjoyed kind of making things feel like it's not just, you know, the the internal Brett voice with different things. Well, I think we talked about this uh, a little
0: bit when we did Dream Country because we've, you know, just done this whole thing kind of, kind of backwards. But now that I have actually listened to the whole thing, which I had not done when we covered just those four episodes of this, I'm going to stand by my initial reaction, but I'm also going to mollify it a little bit. And my initial reaction was that, although I like James McAvoy just quite a bit in just about everything that I've ever seen him in, I mean he's great at pretending to be Patrick Stewart, that's for sure, but I wanted Dream to sound less like a human. I wanted him to have some kind of, uh, you know, change to the the voice, some kind of uh, alterations and yeah, some kind of effect to the voice. It has grown on me though, that he does not. And in fact, now that I've listened to significantly more episodes of McAvoy doing this, I realize he's doing actually a lot of work to try to simulate something like that. And I really appreciate one, the effort and work that goes into that and the skill with which he does that. But yeah, I think it's great. Like I I don't have an alternative that would have been a better choice. I mean, it's absolutely, absolutely awesome. I just wish there was a little reverb on it or something.
1: And that's fair. And particularly, you know, the way the word balloons are done, where it's the inverse, where it's the white text on black instead of the normal black text on white. Eh, perhaps something more alien would have made sense. But I think this is maybe a fair way to not uh, alienate someone who that might have done if you did the effects too much, you know, throughout. But I do want to call out, though, um, one voice actor. And you know, it's the voice of Wesley Dodds and Beelzebub and one of the guards in Sleep of the Just, but he does a lot throughout all these episodes and does many voices. But Ray Porter, I think, does a fantastic job throughout. Um, his Wesley Dodds, the Golden Age man, is, you know, comically kind of over the top in his delivery, which he should be. His Beelzebub, I think, is kind of great and nefarious, although Ray Porter does a great job, but half of my Beelzebub enjoyment uh, whenever Beelzebub appears in throughout this audio recording is very much the fly sound effect, which <laughs> all that the fly sound effect kept telling me is how much I really want this treatment to be done to Alan Moore's run of the swamp thing. I really just <laughs> and I want to have the sounds of the swamp and flies constantly um, and varying levels of it as you know terrible things happen involving flies and that particular series. But, uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed that. So Ray Porter to me is kind of a standout. Um, there are a couple other places as we go that I will call out other voices that he does. And I'm sure that there's one in particular that you and I will spend quite a while discussing.
0: Right? But, uh, it's, it's, it's Gilbert. He plays Gilbert. We don't need to, we don't need to <laughs> pretend like we don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. Ray Porter hundred percent is the MVP of this production. I, had to go look at who this was, who was doing Gilbert. And then when I realized he had also been all these other people that I'd been hearing, it was so impressive. Just, Just a phenomenal performance of all of these characters. So definitely, you know, wins the hat trick or whatever it is, I don't know, whatever kind of awards we give out on the show, which is a thing we're just making up right now. But I, I want to just talk about Beelzebub and Azazel a little bit. And I know we're, we're drifting already here into Preludes and Nocturnes <laughs> more properly, but it's exactly the type of voice effects they did for both Beelzebub and Azazel. That th- that was the kind of thing I wanted for, for Dream. It's fine that we didn't get that. But when I heard that, listening to Hope in Hell, I was, that was my immediate reaction was this. This is what I wanted Dream to sound like
1: and i have not at the time we're recording this act two has been released i've not listened to any of it yet but i wonder if they'll do some sound effects for the angelic voices that we get in Mm -hmm. the later volumes um i kind of hope so because i think it would juxtapose nicely against what we get from uh beelzebub but i I don't know that we will because we didn't get it with lucifer the other thing I wanted to mention audio wise, particularly in sleep of the just off the top is Stephen uh, Critchlow as Roderick Burgess, uh, I think does a fantastic job. And in particular, the it, right at the top during the, the, the ritual to summon, they think death, but they end up cat snaring dream, right? Um, there is a bit where he is cutting into his hand and I kind of winced at the sound that Stephen Critchlow gives and I could more easily envision you know, him cutting his hand to take the blood from it. And when I've read, when I've, I've read this story so many times and when I've read it, I've never assumed that there would be so much kind of pain involved. And and while it's brief and, you know, it doesn't last long, it's something that that performance in particular kind of gives me a little bit more. And even just the whole staging here of the seance with the chorus of voices saying the things I just, I, I thought it, had a lot of momentum Like momentum is the word I want to use. There's a lot of momentum of that and particularly kind of, as it slightly speeds up the rate at which they're saying these things that uh, I really enjoyed. And I kind of, I think, I think sleep of the just is a really kind of hallmark episode that they did a great job. And I think that probably uh, Dirk Maggs put a lot of time into thinking carefully about how you take some things that would be lost in a simple one-to-one translation uh, by adding some narration that, of course, Neil does and throughout. Um, but Neil kind of gives some descriptors then of how things look and appear Um and because neil has a very pleasant voice to listen to uh it's wonderful to hear him do it and also because sam and his work so i think he's the best person to provide the narration in that regard yeah i mean one of the real joys about
0: neil gaiman is that he so frequently does his own audiobooks and although i am a, an eyeball reader first and foremost i will listen to neil gaiman read anything to me and it's been i didn't realize that i had actually been missing the fact that there was no way to have him read sandman to me before but it turns out i was definitely missing that that it is just a phenomenal thing to have him reading or you know narrating these episodes uh, to us and you know introducing the you know setting the scene i guess maybe in some ways playing a kind of rod serling type of <laughs> uh, type of role here and in setting up the episodes in particular and then walking us through the images it's just all phenomenal uh, but there are a couple storytelling devices or choices here in sleep of the just that i i do want to make sure we call attention to uh, two things that i thought were really just awesome. And the one was that the story really begins, you know, opening with the museum keeper. It's really in his point of view, actually begin with the suicide note and then actually takes us back. That's several pages in, but then we go back and see that the rest of it, the actual opening as a kind of flashback. And although that more or less is actually how the comic book opens, just reversed in order a little bit. I don't know that I have ever actually read that issue as if it was the Museum Keeper's story. Maybe I did the first time, but I've just read it so many times since then that I know that he's going to go away and never come back again, but it really worked for me here in this adaptation to get sucked into his story, to see him not just as the point of view character, but almost to see him as the protagonist of, you know, the first 10 minutes or so of this episode. And that really was something that I found really uh, refreshing and quite enjoyable.
1: Yeah. I thought it was really great. And that the way that Dirk Mags ended up, you know, changing the script a little bit to, as you said, bring some of the stuff earlier in the story. I think the curator essentially is our cold open character, both in the audio book as well as in the comic. But in the comic, you know, we can tell pretty quickly by flipping ahead that like, you know, he doesn't appear for that many panels. Right. But we definitely have time to get in his head, as you said, and see from his perspective kind of what he's doing and why and kind of a little bit of his ambivalence about some of his own actions Um, uh, and I think that it's, it's a nice entry point where we are keeping the character of Morpheus as he is in the comic very much like not, or he's not a protagonist right in the first issue. Um, and I believe we talked about this when we talked about the issue is that like, he's there, but he's not doing anything because he can't for a long time. But Roderick Burgess is very much our antagonist. So we're kind of left floating for like how things affect other people. And the curator is the first who before, you know, Morpheus is cut off from the dreaming. He is the first person who has real pain and anguish and very much is kind of setting things in motion then because of what he is willing to surrender um, for the hope of, of uh, getting his son back. So um, I think that does work quite effectively.
0: And then within that same, period there of, of Sleep of the Just, which of course, you know, takes place over uh, several decades. But this business here with the museum keeper, the museum curator and his suicide and the trial of Roderick Burgess' involvement in the, at least the thefts is never totally clear exactly, you know, what legal grounds he's been, you know, put on trial for or anything like that. But, you know, it happens. We get all of that information and we get it in the comic book, as uh, a series of sort of like newspaper columns that we get to read right they're in the panels and we can read them here we actually are getting that narrated for us or voiced over for us by the journalist who's writing these articles for the newspaper and we get some really great you know typewriter sound effects in the background he's interrupted by the editor of the newspaper telling him to go work on something else you know some muttering about you know word count and it made that feel like a very Real world, like a lived-in world, that really, for the first time, made me regret <laughs> that we don't have a spinoff about the about Roderick Burgess and his order. That we don't have this kind of uh, 1920s British occult story from from Vertigo, or maybe we do, and I just don't know about it. I suppose, but I really yearned for more stories about this world, and it made me kind of regret that this is only a prologue to you know the story that we're going to
1: get that actually takes place in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, no, there's some great kind of pulp weird fiction stuff going on there, and, um, that reminds me a lot of, of, reading some stuff by Lovecraft or, you know, thinking about characters I would put in like a Call of Cthulhu game. But uh, yeah, the typewriter Foley work is really great with the newspaper reporter. Um, And I even had had a similar note here for myself that it's about the 19 minute mark of that first episode where he's finishing up his Burgess article and he gets interrupted by his editor who's like, I need you to write something about the sleepy sickness. Apparently it's going to be a thing which is just, it's a great way of delivering the things and particularly taking advantage of the audio format to give you, you know, the sound of a typewriter in addition to the words being said to like convey like this is a journalist who is busy typing stuff away and and that it's someone who is kind of from the side, you know, objectively seeing what Burgess is doing from afar a little bit and not understanding that like Morpheus is involved at all or anything.
0: Right, I guess that's the story I'm, I'm imagining, though. Right, I guess is what I really want is for this character, this journalist, to get his own story to turn into some kind of occult detective who does actually uncover all of this, or maybe not all of this, but just other things. Though, you know, it could be a very Lovecraftian thing, like you're suggesting, Brent, where he uh, does uncover this, discovers you know the existence of dream and the endless, and then goes insane. You know, because because of it, and that's how his uh, his story wraps up. But yeah, I just I guess I want a serial, you know, spinoff for for this character as a kind of a cult detective.
1: I think that'd be a great story. I do think it's an effective way to take lines that otherwise would have gone to Neil as the narrator to just say like bad things are happening, and instead it becomes still telling and not showing, but it's telling in universe in a way that feels like showing right where you've got you know this is a character experiencing these things and typing about them instead of the author just saying and then this happened which is kind of the way we get it from the you know there there is a news article or two but a lot of times it's just the narration box text that we get in the comic itself um But I also think because you particularly and, you know, to some extent also myself and maybe other people who are listening to this are so used to a newspaper reporter as kind of the character you'd put in a pulp weird, you know, uh, fiction story for the 1920s or any early part of the 20th century or even later 20th century, you have a lot of, you know, it's uh, where journalists are like your entry point because it's like, how do we have someone who is not involved at all who can show up and ask a bunch of questions, right? Journalist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a real missed opportunity here to have made this Lois Lane, right? <laughs> yeah. Or they, or at least uh, Lois's like great, great grandfather. Right. <laughs> um, so, um, although now it occurs to me that I don't know that I know much about Lois Lane's parents or grandparents on well, Smallville it's Michael Ironside's her dad right <laughs> <laughs> right in Smallville um
0: well i think let's uh, let's move on to talking about what's next what's after sleep of the just here and talk about the the entire preludes and nocturnes arc and again let's just start by talking about the characterization here or the the depictions the portrayals of the characters here i have a lot more to say about these characters, I think, than I did about the characters in Sleep of the Just. I've already talked about really enjoying, well, we both have, I guess, uh, talked about enjoying the effects of both Beelzebub and Azazel. But I had some criticisms as well, and maybe I'll just start at the, the beginning here and say that I was really surprised to discover that the voice of Ethel D is very American because we really only see her in Sleep of the Just, you know, in the UK. And I guess I just always assumed that she was British. And so it really shocked me when we hear her speaking in Imperfect Hosts. And she's very American, very American.
1: Yeah, it was a little disjointed to think of her because I would assume that all of those people would have, you know, British English voices. Uh, it also then struck me very much. I did enjoy a lot of what William Hope did as uh, Dr. D. But, and I think we talked about this when we talked about the issue um, at one point when he refers to Morpheus as a wanker, it's just like, it it's, it, it rung hollow and not right for that character in the text of the comic. And it rung even falser for me in the audio. Cause hearing someone with a full on American accent, call someone a wanker <laughs> without like, right. Uh, just that that's an edit I would have made. Uh, and I don't know if because they didn't want to turn up the language, but it seems like you could have inserted any number of other, you know, things other than winker there. You
0: no, know, though, I i did quite enjoy the depiction of D, but you're absolutely right that that bothered me as well. There's a kind of a, a question mark thought bubbles coming out of my head as I was was listening to that. But uh, speaking of wankers, Brent, I want to know especially how you felt about the depiction of john constantine
1: i thought taron edgerton was great that i thought he nailed what i would expect john constantine to sound like i really enjoyed kind of his whole like you know hello london hello john how are you like he just yeah i i thought the voice was great um i thought it really worked you know some people may be upset that he doesn't sound more like sting um <laughs> but uh for me it worked particularly for you know this era of john uh, constantine where you know he is he's not young this isn't like uh you know teenage john constantine but he is not as kind of old and weathered as he is you know later um and to me, it just, it worked. And there was kind of a playfulness to the way that he would say things. Um, his conversations with, you know, Chaz in the taxi when Chaz is like, well, what do I call you? And he's like, you don't, you know, you don't call them. Um, they call you. Um, but I. I thought he did a great job. What were your thoughts on Taron Egerton as John Constantine?
0: No, I thought it was absolutely perfect. That's exactly, exactly what that character should sound like. I mean, just absolutely flawless. Though it did point out to me, uh, you know, listening to an actual, you know, person voice this dialogue, it it, – drew my attention to the fact that I just don't think I would be friends with John Constantine if he was someone I knew, which I think is that that kind of goes without saying. Most most people are probably already there, but because I love a cult detective so much, I want to like John Constantine a lot more than I ever actually have. And hearing him voiced made me realize I don't think he's a particularly good friend and maybe also not a particularly good person, even though he does fight evil in the world. And I, I appreciated that.
1: Yeah, no, I think John, Con- I mean, depends on the author, and we've talked about a little bit off the air, but I think John Constantine is a very good person who ends up doing a lot of terrible things in the name of trying to have ends justify means. Uh, but I think he's a terrible friend. Um, uh, and I think that being a friend of his is, you're in for a heartache. Uh Almost nothing will benefit you, and there's a good chance that you will not only lose life and limb, but that your soul will be damned for all eternity. As will that of, like, your children and your family otherwise. Like, it's just, no one should be friends with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I also really liked uh, the Matt Hetty performance. At one point when she is uh, making fun of him, she really nails, you know, when he's, like, not believing her story about you know, Morpheus being a person who's come back, then he's like, oh, that's just a tale we tell people. Then, like, her calling him John Constantine, <laughs> <Right>. she really <laughs> nails the teen, um, as an insult in a way that I think that it wasn't, in, uh, intended in the script. And, uh, and that's, you know, I looked back because I'm like, oh, did, was that actually the wording of the comic? And I'm like, yes, it was. Um, but I, I thought Josie Lawrence did a really good job as Mad Hedy and kind of had fun with that. Um, yeah, I'm
0: looking forward to Mad Hedy returning. That's going to be a lot of fun. I want to talk about one more thing that I really did appreciate about hearing this rather than uh, reading or looking at this, and that was actually uh, also in A Hope in Hell, where we get the, the battle right the 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 battle here as it was narrated by Gaiman, This also was something that was much more vivid to me than the original art is, or even just the, the, the dialogue on its own is. I really felt like that battle was just so imaginative and uh, real to me. And this is actually the first moment also that I was interested at all in the upcoming TV adaptation, which is a thing I don't really care about otherwise. But this made me actually excited to see some of that storytelling transformed into
1: a different medium. The audio of it was great and particularly the nightclub setting really came to live came alive to me um with um turns on taking to the microphone. Like there was a really great kind of fun but kind of devilish feeling about it. Also, that's another place where I don't know that we got it in the comic text at all, but Dream feeling uncomfortable and that he might lose came across a little bit more or dream being distracted by something. That was it. at one point he's distracted by something. And in the comic, I don't think we're told he's distracted. It, there's just a panel that cuts away to something. And in reading the comic, I didn't think of it as like, this is dreams POV and we're seeing this because he's seeing this instead. I'm thinking, no, no, they're just building out the realm of what we're looking at. Um And so I think in grounding it to the character, maybe. And the fact that he can be a little distracted about things, Kind of was a smart move. On the other hand, you know, one of your, I think your favorite panel from that comic originally, the big splash panel of all the, you know, million demons in hell, that felt lost to me because at times having more cast made spaces feel bigger to me than the comic and it's, you know, smaller panels. But at other times it felt far, far, uh, far smaller. So we're told that there's millions of, of You know, demons and devils throughout hell who have assembled, Um, but it doesn't feel as majestic to me in the audio recording um, in that as it does in that one splash panel that we get. No, there's definitely no sense there that this is uh,
0: the missing Dr. Seuss book about hell. (laughs) <laughs> which is just a phenomenal thing to experience in the comic it, itself and yeah things like that you know really some of my favorite elements actually of the art are things that are lost in a radio adaptation for sure though uh, you know as i said i this got me thinking about the upcoming tv adaptation as well and those things hopefully presumably will go back in to that type of adaptation and
1: that's something that i'm i'm actually quite looking forward to is to see the visual elements I will say while we're talking about Heligan, though, that uh, I think Michael Sheen is great as Lucifer. I think that he nails kind of the very kind of sarcastic and aloof sense that I wanted from that character. Uh, And it doesn't feel like he's just doing like a, you know, pastiche of David Bowie, um, (laughs) which I think is a way – it's a way that I thought they were going to maybe go with it. But uh, I think Michael Sheen very much – kind of embodies the voice that I will now hear when I hear that character talk. Um, so, which I guess will be interesting when I, when we see the adaptation for television, because uh, that'll be Gwendolyn Christie, but still, um, and she'll probably do a wonderful job as well, but it'll be different enough. One other thing that's mentioned in the narration that, that kind of is notable to me that was not in the text is at one point when he is facing off against D it says dream thinks maybe the Ruby can kill me. And we don't get that text in the comic. I don't think at all. Um, he doesn't seem to understand until the end of the issue that like, you know, having decrushed crush the Ruby is the way to go. Um, but he, he comes across a little bit more scared in the audiobook, um, which I think is probably better for having at this point, at this point, Dream being the protagonist of that issue, um, for you to identify with him and root for him, it probably feels better if it's not the, you know, Superman effect of like, oh, well, you know, unless Kryptonite's involved, we know who's going to win this fight, right? <laughs> Yeah, I I agree. I thought that there was actually a lot more vulnerability to Dream
0: in this adaptation than there is for me on the page. Again, some of that might just be because of how many times I have read it on the page and getting some of the, the empathy, some of the pathos here from the the voice acting. But you're also right that some of these lines that don't appear on the page or that are transformed from a third person narrator saying them, uh, transformed from that into actual first person monologue from Dream really, to me, made me feel like there were stakes where the last time I read this, at least didn't feel like there were stakes because I already know how it's going to turn out. And I really appreciated that dramatic tension there.
1: But I think we can probably talk about Sound of Her Wings. And um, what were your thoughts about this presentation of death? Right. I think that although certainly the goth
0: outfit, right? Like that's the iconic death costume. I think that my just internalized kind of default mode for thinking about who death is, has actually been set by men of good fortune. And so the other thing that then really shocked me, I mean, made me just like have a spit take while driving my car was to discover that She's also an American, apparently, and not British. And not only, you know, just an American, I mean, she just sounds like an American high school student. She sounds dumb and flighty. And I want her to sound wise and vivid, which is, I think, how she comes off on the page in this issue, but then especially in men of good fortune where she seems to know more about just the workings of the world in general than dream does and is taking him on a tour of the real world. And in both of these cases, just hearing a, a flighty American teenager just did not, did not
1: work for me. And I was torn somewhat because I do hear what you mean with a slightly higher pitched voice that, uh, Cat Dennings, who's the voice of death and the audio adaptation gives us um, does make her sound a little younger. But on the other hand, I also think death always to me in the comic adaptation has kind of a twinkle behind her eyes. So she may sound like, you know, she's saying something that a younger person would say, not a teenager again, but someone like in their twenties or something, but yet be speaking with the wisdom of, millennia upon millennia right so it didn't really bother me as much and at this point i'd pretty much accepted that most people were american um (laughs) and i think also because death first appeared to me and in the comic you know we first see her in new york city uh in washington square park as you pointed out to me um and here explicitly it says washington square park in the narration that she should sound like an american because she's in america like that's it didn't bother me the way it it, it did you i think right yeah i think I, in my head canon i think that, you know what i wanted
0: was for death to sound a lot more like lily allen like that's probably who you know mm, if i could have cast somebody okay. that's probably who i would have cast now that i think kat Denning is doing a bad job of performing this character it simply is not the depiction of the character that i i would have picked well we'll get a chance to talk about death a little bit more when we talk about men of good fortune which we're going to deal with as a kind of standalone story we'll talk about why that is in a moment but let's move into talking about the doll's house volume by talking about the first issue that's in there that is not The Sound of Her Wings, which is Tales in the Sand. We'll just treat that as a standalone story, the standalone story that it is, I suppose. And I guess for me, Brent, the big thing that jumped out here was the absence of Neil Gaiman.
1: Yes. Um, and in the credits, it still, still says narrated by Neil Gaiman, but instead we get a female narrator, uh, which I really liked. I like the fact that we had a completely different voice for the narration of this. Um, I think that was a smart decision. Um, it's not something that I think they should deploy all that often, but there may be excuses in the future. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but where that could be used as effectively again.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. I I don't know that I would have really had much of a reaction if Gaiman had been the narrator here, but it was absolutely the right call to use a different character, right? To give us a character who is actually in the world of this story and have that person be be doing the the narrating. That was a brilliant choice. And it made this episode really live as its own self-contained world here which then in turn made the whole Sandman story just feel so massive which of course it is right the whole Sandman story is taking place literally on you know a stage that is you know has the entire universe all of creation all of cosmos as its its canvas and just this one decision here made that uh, really come alive for me
1: another decision i really liked was the decision to Give a different voice actor the role of Morpheus, where Kaikoul is voiced by John McMillan instead of being um, voiced by um, James McAvoy. James McAvoy does not appear in this episode. Um, it made me, though, think back, though, to when we see Kaikoul briefly in Hope in Hell when he sees Nada. And I, I kind of regret they didn't drop John McMillan's voice in there. Um, And I don't know if it's because they've decided that since this is a tale that's being told, you know, by the uncle, if it's the way he's envisioning it. And so it's his perspective. And so he's going to attach the voice he thinks is appropriate. Um, But I just I just I feel like it was a lost opportunity. I think it would have been taken a lot more kind of effort to insert the other voice perhaps in Hope and Hell but I think it would have been a fun teaser and made this issue feel this episode rather <laughs> uh, Tales in the Sand feel like less of a standalone in some ways to weave in not just the description of how how Kaikul appears which we did get but to say like he looks like this and he sounds different and just to drop John McMillan's voice in for like the two or three lines he has with Nada there I thought would have been more effective to also kind of of foreshadow this whole story that you have later. And I think that was a lost opportunity, but I did really enjoy hearing John McMillan's, um, depiction of Morpheus again, without the effects that maybe it would be nice to have that we've talked about with McAvoy, but still accepting that I, I really enjoyed his performance.
0: I did too. I think it's a very cool idea to switch the voice actor. Who's playing the character when he's When he's in these different settings or taking on a different guise. I think there was also a missed opportunity for the Martian Manhunter stuff in Passengers to have him be temporarily voiced differently. But from a storytelling perspective, I see why you would not want to change voice actors or even voice effects perhaps in the middle of an episode. That it's fine if you're gonna stick with the one depiction for the entire episode. That makes sense to me. I think you worry about confusing the audience, especially an audience audience that maybe is just driving or bench pressing or doing dishes. And so, you know, not 100% focused on what's going on, right? That you don't want to lose anybody there. So just from a production standpoint,
1: I get that, but I'm with you in wishing that we even had a little more variety of that. I really enjoyed the Tales of the Sand production. I I thought it was, it was very nice. Um, Unfortunately, as with Men in Good Fortune, which we can talk about it in a minute in terms of the placement. It does still feel much like a palate cleanser is not the right word, but it is very much just a, and here's another story dropped in the middle, which I guess, you know, wing uh, uh, sound of her wings also is that like, you know, clearly one through seven are a thing. And then eight and nine and in the audio version, 10, um, are kind of standalone bits, which are important for, looking at bits of dreams approach to things throughout time, but does not connect directly with some of the plot elements. Um, although it does obviously connect with the themes, which is the reason why it is in Doll's House. Um,
0: well, that's the big thing that we need to talk about here with Men of Good Fortune, right? Is the the fact that it's it's been moved, that it's it's been rendered here as the 10th story rather than coming in the middle of the Doll's House arc. It's been put as another standalone episode in front of it, which... I'll just say I don't think it was a bad move at all. In fact, it was probably for this purpose in particular a good move.
1: I agree. I think it actually was a smart move. I think something that always bumped for me about Men of Good Fortune, where it occurs in the regular comics continuity, was, you know, we get to this climactic battle, um, in which he, you know, frees Jeb uh, from brute and glob. Lita is left there, they Lita and, and Morpheus have their exchange where Morpheus is one of his most terrible, other than how he's been towards Nada, which is probably the most terrible he gets, right? But like his his interaction is so dismissive towards Lita Hall throughout. And then to immediately go into a, you know, a fun series of vignettes about how he slowly learns that he's got a friend. It feels very much Men of Good Fortune feels to me like the christmas episode of a television (laughs) show where it's just like let's have a standalone thing and maybe there'll be some drama but by the end of it everyone's smiley and happy to see each other and they'll exchange gifts god bless us everyone um and it to me it's it's arresting where it falls given how terrible he is to lead a hall and it's not clear to me i guess he's off at the end i think he says he's an appointment to keep to lead a hall so like that's right I doesn't jive to me that you have got the person who's decided that Hob Gadling is like, Oh, I can be friends with a mortal would match with the person who is so dismissive. And of course, you know, some of it might be, you know, the misogyny of dream, right? But still, it doesn't strike me as this is the same character. It does strike me, strike me that it sets well here, though, because we see him being so terrible in Tales of the Sand and we know that that you know, continues to be the case when he's in hope and hell, but men of good fortune, we can think like, okay, well, we see him we're, we're we're first encountering him years, you know, maybe centuries after the events of tales in the sand. And he still is not that great, but he's getting a little bit better. And then by the end of it, he's better. And we don't know when he's meeting hob relative to when he is in hell to get his helm back. The understanding is that he's already been to hell to get his helm back. So maybe he's, you know, anyways, I think it works better in terms of the placement. It doesn't hurt the flow of the story. And I think the, um, the characterization of dream makes more sense here and doesn't feel like it suddenly is off in terms of where he is vis-a-vis his regard to human beings.
0: And I think it just works better, actually, as a beat in between the two story arcs, right? So we've got Preludes and Nocturnes, which is about Dream getting his stuff back after his imprisonment. And then we have The Doll's House, which is about Dream getting... Going after dreams and nightmares that have escaped the dreaming, right? He's trying to repair his kingdom. I think Men of Good Fortune, you know, the, the 1989 portion of Men of Good Fortune works a lot better if we see that actually as a little break he's taking between these two really important uh, f- official functions that he has to perform. Like he's got his stuff back, and then what he's thinking is, hey, you know what I need now before I go after the Corinthian and before I go after Bruton Glob is. I just need to have a beer with Hobb. I need to have a beer with my friend. That's what I need. And so I'm going to take a mental health day and go do that. I just like that as a beat a lot better.
1: Right, and I think it also gives space between, like, it's not immediately after you get everything back, that, like, oh, and then there's a Dream Vortex right away. Like, it was just waiting for the next, you know, issue to drop. Right. Wait, we just beat Ultron. What do you mean that now we have to deal with Galactus? (laughs) It's it's like it was just yesterday, or 30 days ago, or depending on comic schedules recently, if you're Saga, it's been years. But, like, yeah. (laughs) Throwing throwing some shade at Saga there, and <laughs> yeah, we're all with you. We're all with you. But... <laughs> yeah. So, place of love where we all just wish we want, we want more.
0: Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move into talking about the dolls house proper now, and let's, as we've been doing, talk about you know the the characterization, the depictions of the characters, the the voice acting first, and what I really mean there is. Let's talk about Ray Porter again and how freaking awesome this guy is. He's Gilbert. He's Hector Hall. He's perfect in both of these roles. And just, it's just so awesome. I just kind of want him to play all the voices in my life now, play all the
1: characters in my life. Yeah, he's... He's really great. And, uh, I don't know that I really want to go watch. I think it's the, uh, the Justice League film again, but apparently I think he is the voice of Darkseid, or maybe that's just in the, uh, the notations, but he certainly has a lot of range. Um, Ray Porter is one of those people who I think does such a, he nicely demonstrates the range that a very good vocal actor can have, where he believably gives me very distinct characters without looking at the actual, you know, credits and cast list, I would not be able to tell you all of the characters he does throughout this because his Hector is so different from his Gilbert, right?
0: No, I was totally surprised to discover that that was the same actor. I, As I was listening to these episodes and taking notes on them, I was intentionally not looking at any of, of the casting, any of the production notes until I had worked my way through the whole thing at least once. And so I had all these notes about how awesome Gilbert is and how you know i just want to change like my alarm tone in the morning to you know said the girl like that's like that's i want to wake up to that right and then i had all these notes about how perfect hector hall is as this like um you know superman if superman were really 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 stupid and just just absolutely perfect and i was surprised to discover that's the same voice actor i just would not have guessed that at all just just amazing
1: he's so great although his voice for um For Gilbert did remind me of there's a race of anthropomorphic, like, rhino men in D&D. And that's what I envisioned, actually, when he spoke with that tone is just like, he sounded to me (laughs) like this is not a human being. This is an anthropomorphic rhino creature. Um, but it's, it, it works. No, he was he was absolutely
0: awesome. I loved uh, Bruton Glob as well. And just the way that uh, Ray Porter is playing Hector Hall, I mean, really does sound like he's playing Superman from a 1940s radio play. And then Bruton Glob sound like they're doing exactly the same thing. Like those characters are right in that exact same story.
1: It just worked so well. Yeah, I yeah it was great Brut and Glob, i it, there was a lot more comedy in the Bruton Glob audio performance than I had attributed to it, and this is my failing. It's not the comic is it's it's there in the panel. I'm just when I read it, I didn't read it with the comic voices and with the back and forth um the way that the voice actors do for Bruton Glob. I really loved the first time we go to Jeb's Adventureland. Um, the music that brings it on. I <laughs> oh, wish <yeah. laughs> we'd heard that every time we visited. And I feel like I didn't get it as much as I wanted the first time, as much as we got it the first time. But, um, I really enjoyed that on the flip side. And it's not that I didn't like it, but, uh, Reza Ahmed as the Corinthian was not, it did not match how I had ever thought of the Corinthian. And I, I, I think he's a great actor and I do like this performance. But it took some adjustment. And I realized as I was listening to him that what was striking me as off was when I've read the comic and I've subscribed a voice to him, it's been the voice of Tom Cruise. I've always imagined the Corinthian sounds like Tom Cruise. (laughs) This is what I discovered about myself is that I imagined that this would be Tom Cruise. um, And so – Riz Ahmed's performance is a little bit more understated, and he doesn't come across like he's smiling as much as a Tom Cruise would, where he smiles, you know, 120% of the time. And so I liked his performance, but it did take me a little bit of adjusting to. What were your thoughts on the Corinthian? Well, I have to say, I think this tells us more about your opinion of Tom
0: Cruise than it does about your opinion of the Corinthian. But yeah, I guess, you know, Tom Cruise does have that creepily too perfect smile, right? Where just I know those aren't real teeth and it's not clear you're a real person possibly, right? Might actually be an android or something. But yeah, I I hear that. But I, I agree with you that this was not the voice that I had in my head. But unlike with my response to death, where that really bothered me, here, it didn't bother me. In fact, to me, this actually brought a lot of the character to life. Seeing the character less actually as a kind of gregarious figure, like Tom Cruise, for example, and more subdued and more subtle. Uh, I actually really appreciated that as an interpretation of, you know, the inspiration for all serial killers. Um, But yeah, so I I appreciated it, actually. The other voice acting choice here that really jumped out to me and almost had me doing a spit take was that um, Chantel is Lilith from Cheers. I mean, I literally said that out loud in my car. Is that Lilith from Cheers? No way. No
1: way. And looked it up. And indeed, that is Baby (laughs) word. Yeah, and I like Baby New Earth, and what threw me off, and this is, you know, because of the way that we've done our, the way I did my listening of the audiobook because of when we discussed these things. That's also the voice of the cat who gives the presentation in, um, Dream of a Thousand Cats. That's the right, Which I had cat. not,
0: I had not realized that uh, in the moment, and didn't realize that until I was
1: looking through the production credits here. And so it threw me. Not because it was a of Cheers*. It threw me because it's the Siamese cat, and I didn't <laughs> want those to be this. Because then in my head they're supposed to be the same person, and they shouldn't be. Like I just, I wish that that was not. I wish they had cast someone different because of that. The other thing that struck me was. And I mean, maybe I'm misrecalling. I need to check, but, um, it clearly has Zelda whispering in the audiobook in a way that in the comic, I'm not sure because of the part of the word balloon was driven, whether I ever thought that Zelda really did make noises versus Chantel whispered to Zelda.
0: Right that's always what I thought as well. I just didn't think that Zelda made noise at all right. and that uh, you know, the Chantel's ability to you know speak for Zelda as well was uh, showing us actually that they've got this really in, intense almost telepathic kind of bond with each other rather than that it's just that Zelda will only whisper to Chantel, who then repeats what Zelda has told her. That was a choice I didn't like for the characterization, but again, how else are you going to do that on a on radio?
1: Well, right, and I that's where I landed too, where I did not like it as a characterization. But then I thought about it and thought, well, what would I do? And I thought, no, you have to do that. Otherwise, the audience doesn't know that Zelda exists. Other than a narrator saying, and there's another person standing next to this voice that is occurring. So I I think it works for the audio adaptation. But I think it's a shortcoming of the audio adaptation versus the comics. Um, and we'll, we can talk about some other kind of shortcomings there as well. So there's a bit and I just where Nimrod is at the convention at the serial convention. And he is there's a bit where he is going up to the stage and. And we hear his, we hear a a mutated voice, an effect laden voice of his inner monologue.
0: Yeah, that makes it sound like he's possessed or has like something living in him that's controlling him. It doesn't sound like it's his inside his head voice.
1: It, it didn't strike me that way. It struck me as this could still be his inside his head voice, but that inside his head, he is just a very different – his inner life is very different than how he's externally presenting. Um, although I can see why you would see that. But what struck me and what I didn't like was we see Nimrod before and after that, but there's just the one scene. And so I looked back at the issue, and sure enough, it's – we only get the, the narration of what his internal voice stands like when he is going up to the mic, even though we see him wandering around and listening to people and hearing people talk and going and talking to the hotel manager. And then we see him later. Like there are plenty of other times, but it, it becomes like the eye amulet where I'm like, it, it yells out to me, why is this here? When, if you're not going to use it throughout, why use it just once? Um, So I think I probably would have, cut that or I would have just had the narrator deliver that and had Neil say, and he thinks to himself, blah, 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 blah. Which also then I think would have gotten over the the issue that you had, Glenn, in terms of he thinks to himself, not he hears a voice that says.
0: Right. I, I think that if I had not read the material already, if this was my first experience of Sandman, I would have understood that this character Nimrod is actually possessed by some kind of demon or alien parasite or, or something like that, which, hey, maybe maybe he is. That's a thing that's possible in this world. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on the, the the critique of that as well. And I think that's something that I would have caught. The other thing happening here in this issue, or this episode of, of Collectors, is that uh, I think that my headcanon, that the, um, the figure we see wandering the halls in the cowboy outfit with the belt buckle Tex, uh, who I thought was actually the hotel manager because he also is wearing a type of cowboy-esque attire when we, when we meet him. I think that the accent work here in this episode suggests that the idea that I had that the manager of this hotel in rural Georgia uh, was someone who identified as Tex because he was actually from Texas. The accent work here is trying to do r- rural Georgia and not Texas. So I guess my interpretation
1: there was wrong. And Texas, somebody else. We actually get the name of the hotel that I don't think we ever get in the comic.
0: That's right. We, we, we do not get it in the comic. And, uh, I was interested in that.
1: So it's the hotel, uh, it's the Yellowhammer Hotel is what we're told in the audiobook. So I took to the Google as one does, um, and discovered that there is a hotel Yellowhammer Inn and Conference Center, but it's in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, not in Georgia. Um, <laughs> although I am now planning that at some point, um, Maybe there needs to be a uh, some kind of convention that we throw in this conference center. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think I
0: just want to rent this this conference center out. Just, we just do a larp, you know like I don't yep. know we could just do we, we'll reenact this. Uh, would be <laughs> well, I don't know that might might be weird, but it would be cool. I suppose at the same time. No, I'm with you. I I feel that same that same tug at my heartstrings there. Like, is that where we're gonna have our first Clay Temple con? <laughs> it's a terrible idea to have it there, except for the part where it's an awesome idea to have it there. Well, there are a couple other storytelling, element storytelling changes or alterations that I think that we should point out as well, Brenton. For me, I think the big thing here that changes with getting this only as audio is that it is not until the last episode of the Doll's Hells arc that an audience who has not read this before can know that Gilbert is actually G.K. Chesterton, which was certainly my experience as a reader. I didn't know who Chesterton was even actually when we get the picture of him in that last issue. But it is called out to us here, it is pointed out to us here, but only then. And I feel like Gaiman wanted people to recognize that Gilbert was G.K. Chesterton from the start. So I was interested that there was no move to signal that to us earlier in the storyline. And so because Gilbert has as as you pointed out when we covered these issues Brent has several lines that are Chesterton lines or you know adaptations of Chesterton lines if you're seeing in the art that this is GK Chesterton then you probably also know those lines and so there's an element uh, of enjoyment there for you that is yeah just missing in the audio adaptation it's certainly not a a big deal and it does mean that well really it just means that people who are listening to this and that's their first entry here are having the same experience we did which is that we just didn't know when we were 16. We just didn't know about G.K. Chesterton. So we never had any idea of that until we've gone back as uh, adults to, to to read it. And it's that's been a fine experience. It's worked out okay for me. man, I just thought it was an interesting move.
1: Yeah, I, I thought it was too. But I do like that eventually they just say, and he looks like G.K. Chesterton, because that way if you... It's a nice way for Neil and, you know, if he's a fan also, um, Dirk Max to signal like, hey, if you want to read some more stuff written by the actual person who this right. character is based off of, go to your local library and consider getting something. <laughs> like it, it's a nice it's nice to acknowledge in some way, even though it is a little curious how it's acknowledged.
0: Gaiman does quite a bit of this actually here as we're concluding The Doll's House. So one of the things that we also spent a lot of time on when we covered this issue is the stack of books, right? What is Rose reading? And there are only two in the art that are named, but Gaiman actually gives uh, a much longer list. There are more books in the pile, but you can't tell what they are. But Gaiman tells us what they are. And the one that jumped out to me, of course, is that uh, he mentions Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by M.R. James. We talked a lot about M.R. James because there are lines from M.R. James in The Doll's House. But um, Gaiman, again, calls attention to to that here, says, this is a book people should read. People should read Ghost Stories of an Antiquary. And well, I agree, people should.
1: Yeah. No, I think it's, it's great. It's a nice excuse to put a bunch of stuff in there. What struck me as well is also you know, we talked about this a little bit, I think, when we were recording. In different issues, you'd see different band posters or records. Right. He does call out a specific records at the end, but we don't get that earlier. So at no point do we get the reference to the fact that there's a cure poster on the wall, I don't think. But we do get a specific reference to a Cowboy Junkies album. Um, Right. (laughs) Which is just like, if you're going to spend some time by yourself and it's just, and I don't, I believe this was recorded, it was released during, but I believe it was recorded probably prior to the pandemic. But it almost strikes me as like, by the way, if you're in a pandemic and you just find yourself having to be alone with books and records, (laughs) here's some things to consider. Yeah, the other musical bit here that uh, was was missing
0: were two opportunities to play some Lou Reed, right? The the one that would have been most (laughs) obvious, of course, is just in the collectors, right? But that's gone. And I was really hoping that Men of Good Fortune was going to have just some closing music that was just Men of Good Fortune, right? But I get that the rights are expensive for those songs as well. The other big place where Gaiman is suggesting that maybe there's other art you might want to go check out, the one that I think really actually mattered the most to me is during the intense climax of this storyline, right? Where we're in the dreaming and Dream is going to execute Rose and Gilbert is there or you know, Fiddler's Green is there trying to prevent this. And you know then we get Unity show up and so on. Uh, but I want to read to you, Brent, the narration that we get from Gaiman. And, and in fact, actually, you might want to look if you've got the book in front of you or you know uh, the page on your screen, you might actually want to take a look at uh at that panel here as I'm reading this narration. So here's what Gaiman says. Morpheus's cloak is now a coat, which blows open unbuttoned over black jeans and black boots. He is bare chested, as is the tradition of executioners. And this is sort of on the page, but it doesn't get nearly this much detail. Like this is not really, I think what's quite being depicted there, or at least it's not being... uh, highlighted that that's what's being depicted here right it's not the center of any of these panels where what we're really looking at is you know Fiddler's Green taking its station again essentially and we just don't really get like a full on body shot of dream here uh you know this kind of epic pose where we really want to pay attention to this costume change and so what jumped out to me is that this is actually a description of Severian from the Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe. I mean it's just like literally a description of Severian from Gene Wolf's Magnum Opus. And it's possible that this was an illusion that Gaiman always intended. We know, you know, by this point that he had read quite a bit of Gene Wolf. I don't think they were quite in touch with each other at this point, though we're not far from from that. We're not far from the point where Gene Wolfe is actually, you know, writing the foreword to, to volumes of of the the Sandman. But this narration here really emphasizes that this is indeed an allusion to Gene Wolfe. And what really also struck me here is that Gaiman would have recorded this only about a year after Gene Wolfe had died, his friend Gene Wolfe had died. So this was something that was really touching to me. It was very touching to hear this narration. And I I, I just felt like there was even some bit of grieving for his friend, even in the delivery of of that line.
1: So, some of the choices that were made for the audio audiobook very much change the way that I view the scene than was in the comic book, and that is when Dream has defeated um, Bruton Glob and Lita and Jeb are in the basement. That you know the doors exploded out, and there's a few things that happened. One thing of note was that Jeb asks Dream, "Can I go?" And Dream says yes, and then Jeb runs off. And in the comic, I don't think we see any interaction between Dream and Jeb. Jeb just ends up out of the house and then at the side of the road trying to get a car and gets picked up by the Corinthian. But there isn't, Dream doesn't acknowledge Jeb even as an entity, right? He's angry at Bruton Glob for the fact that they took advantage of this boy's brain, but really just because they did something that He didn't want them to do vis-a-vis him and his power and his realm, not that they were particularly doing something terrible to Jeb. And he certainly – we talked about this, I think, when we talked about the issue – he doesn't particularly seem to give any care as to what the, you know, step-parents were doing to Jeb. But here we have Jeb actually asking, like, can I run off? So that was one thing that was added – just so that the audio audible audience knows, well, where's Jeb in the scene? And the answer is like, well, he was there for a second and then he was told to leave. So he left, which sets up then why the Corinthians, so I understand why they added it, but it was, it was, an, it was an interesting change. The other thing that was interesting was Lita's last line, which is in the final panel of the scene in the comic, but in the last line that she gives in the issue, in the, uh, the episode in the audio is she says over my bet, dead body, over my dead body is what she says to, to dream. And she sounds very triumphant in the way she says it in the audiobook. over my dead body. Right. But in the panel in the comic, we have her say over my dead body while she is, you know, pregnant on the floor looking very kind of, you know, very just tired from the fact that, you know, her. Her world has literally just crashed around her and she has just watched her husband, you know, be dispensed back to the, the dead. And it comes across as more of a, in, when I read it always, it comes across more to me as her thinking like over my dead body, almost as if she's saying it, you know, with conviction, but kind of almost under her breath, or at least not as triumphantly as she seems to almost be, you know, not quite yelling it, but closer to that in the audiobook. I don't know if that struck you at all, Glenn.
0: Uh I, I had to pull over at this point. Yeah. We recorded, we read and, and recorded uh, that issue. Right before I became a parent, and so this was my first time going back to this storyline, and a lot actually of what's here early in the Sandman affected me very differently. Now that I have a have a child in the in the world, this scene in particular really affected me. I had to to pull over and uh, regroup before I could finish driving to to work at, at this point, and I. I yeah, I think I heard that delivery differently than you did, Brent, because I, I would not use the word triumphant there. I would use the word determined there. And That's fair. I liked the strength of that because I don't, um, I mean, it's certainly how I would feel in that moment as well, right? That there, I might not have strength for anything else left in the world, but there's no way that you're getting my child without me putting up the biggest fight that I've got. For that, and that resonated with me. I actually think I really appreciated that delivery.
1: Yeah, no, I think the delivery was good, and I think that they're both strong. I just, one, I interpreted it as she is kind of in the audiobook more, she is like, you know, yelling it after him. And in the comic, he has already left, and she is, you know, stating it with a lot of conviction and strength but in his absence, like he's not there to hear it anymore. Right. I mean, I think, I think you're absolutely right
0: that I think the delivery in the audio play is different than what is suggested on page for sure. Though, of course, also, and I I will not say anything spoilery here, but the adaptation has the benefit of hindsight (laughs) in here of of knowing where actually that thread is going to be picked up. I mean, it's very clearly a thread that at least could be picked up here, but this might even be one indication that Gaiman hadn't thought through at this point yet what that would, be, because this does feel like a bit of a tweak, Uh, not a retcon,
1: you know, but a bit of a tweak knowing where this is actually going to go. There was one change that I wanted to talk about that I did not care for, um, but I think it was probably done the best it could do for the Audible, which was um, when we have everyone having their dreams in the house before the walls start coming down because of the dream vortex... Chantel and Zelda's dream, the way that it's laid out and also Ken and Barbie's dreams, the side-by-side way that it's done in the comic, in the different art choices and just the arrangement of those panels. is just something that I really love about that issue. And unfortunately they couldn't do that. So instead we got, you know, here's Chantal's dream and we get that. And then here is Zelda's dream. And we get that as opposed to the way that I read it was to kind of, I mean, I've got to sort of read it a couple of ways. Sometimes I've read it as Chantel's Dream all the way across, and then I've gotten Zelda's all the way across. But sometimes I've kind of jumped back and forth, or at least I've known these things to be happening contemporaneously. Um, And in the audiobook, you can't be presenting them truly contemporaneously the way you can on the comics panel. I think because you wanted to differentiate when the walls are up between when they start disintegrating between the dreams – you needed to have them distinctly talk about. So we talk about just Chantel's dream and then we talk just about Zelda's dream. But to me, it's unfortunate that you lose that. Also, the differences in art between kind of the – you know um 1980s new wave artist record label look of Chantel's dream <laughs> to the like you know gothic romance look of zelda's dreams or the whatever the hell is going on with ken's art dream versus the like you know um muppet inspired you know sesame street kind of dreams that uh, barbie is having um it's just it's Unfortunately, I don't think there's anything you can do to differentiate that. Although I guess you could have layered in different um if you if you decided to have an underlying kind of music theme to more of this, you could have done different music. But I think that would have been too disjoint disjointed for a given audience to listen to. But it is something that unfortunately is lost in the
0: Even when we did this issue, we broke the dreams up. Separately and and dealt with them that way. I mean, I think when you're doing it over audio only, that's the only way that you can you can actually do this. And while we're on the topic of these dreams, we cannot let the opportunity pass by to say uh, Martin Tenbones, voiced by Ray Porter, and uh, and just wouldn't have known again if I hadn't looked in the credits.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it, and his Martin Tenbones is not at all what my Martin Tenbones was headcanon wise. I think I had him thinking sounding more like a Muppet. In my head, but I think because of the strength of his performance, it could be next time I am reading through this and encountering Martin Tenbones again, I instead am going to be substituting in kind of the uh, Ray Porter's way of evoking him um, as more my now headcanon of how Martin Tenbones sounds.
0: No, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but I think that it is probably fair to say that the only – the headcanon voice for me that has changed as I'm reading the comics is the characters that Ray Porter voiced. All the rest of them are are staying th- the same, right? They're going to be the way I heard them. But this one has now, uh, Ray Porter has now infected my my brain. And this is how I will be hearing these character voices forever from now on. And of course, we'd love to keep having this conversation about the alterations, the the changes, the <laughs> refinements, the depictions uh, here in this adaptation. But that's all that we're going to have time for on this episode. So we hope that you'll come by the forum or the subreddit and, and let us know how this adaptation
1: struck you. But for now, that's going to do it for us. I'm Glenn McDorman, And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. And if you'd like to support the network and get access to all sorts of bonus
0: episodes from across the network, please check us out on patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Next month, we will be back with Gaiman's really fantastic short story, Chivalry. Just one of my absolute favorite stories of his. And then the month after that, we will be getting back to our regular coverage of The Sandman with the first issue in the Season of Mists storyline. And until then, Pleasant dreams.